worship this morning. Uh, we're continuing this week our journey through that subject of, of the gospel at work, that integration of faith and, and praxis. And, and because it's Thanksgiving Sunday and because it's a great way of linking into the theme, I wanted to take us all the way back to Genesis, to creation, to the account of a garden. The Thanksgiving weekend, the festival, at least celebrating as a harvest festival, really is rooted in a culture that is foreign to us. It's long gone. But you can imagine that in a day and age when you didn't go to Costco and the superstore to buy the food and the decorations that adorned your house on this weekend, that you would be conscious every time you looked at fresh produce and and fresh flowers and, and these things that are the product of the gardens and the fields, that they were, uh, they were the end of a strenuous, long season of arduous activity. Unless you worked, you died. But Thanksgiving was something else. It's also the recognition that unless God worked along with you, None of it was possible. There's a certain amount that you can do in agriculture, in fact, in any industry, and then there's a certain amount that you just yield to God and say, you will cause to flourish what will flourish, and you will cause to wither what will wither. And then Thanksgiving was a third thing. It was a community celebration. You brought to your table others in order to say that, that what God has given to us was never meant to be hoarded by us, but meant to be freely shared. The fruit of the earth was for the people of the earth. So we're going to be in Genesis this morning. The book of Genesis tells us, of course, about creation, about how things began. It tells us that God began everything, and he tells us why he began everything. The book of Genesis addresses all of those foundational issues, and among the issues that come up in Genesis are two words that come back almost like a repeating refrain, both in Genesis and throughout Scripture and in this series. They're the twin words, work and rest. Remember last week we did some of the mathematics of work and worship and you had your calculators out and we, we figured out that if you spent your entire life in worship, worshiping for a generous allotment of of two hours every Sunday in corporate worship, and if you did that over, over 52 weeks a year and over 75 years, you would spend just under 8,000 hours of your life here in corporate worship. But then we did the mathematics of work, of your day-to-day work in the world. We thought of 48 weeks a year. We thought of 40 years of work. We thought of 40 hours of week per work. We came up with that colossal number of 77,000 hours spent in work. And that number, uh, that number is predicated on assumptions which I think we're being really generous with ourselves. Because hands up, if you think you work only 40 hours a week, not many hands, right? So we're low there on that number. Hands up if you think that you are going to retire after only 40 years of work, meaning you didn't start working until you were 20. Rochelle. <laughs> you didn't start work until you were 25, and you plan to stop on the dot at 65. Neither one of those calculations ring true anymore. There's something going on with work in our day. 
Uh, I mean, to be clear, the Bible never really said five days you shall work and then two days off. But, but something is going on, and there's a lot of reasons for it. I'm, I'm reading it has to do with a, a change in the economy, the new economy. It, it has to do with changes in technology and cell phones and email and the relentlessly connected world. Uh, that it has. I mean, there's just all of these villains that are out there. What I'd like to do this morning, and we're going to go back to Genesis and look there, is, is entertain the idea that really the arch-villain in this new collision with work isn't technological, and it's not economic or sociological. It's spiritual. It's, it's theological. There's something going on. Work has become a personal spiritual crisis. You remember, maybe this is just for me, but remember when you... Ate, you just ate? I, I mean, you just, you prepared a meal, you brought it to the table, and you just enjoyed your meal? Uh, it feels like we never just eat when we eat. I, I'm always doing something else when I eat. I mean, there's always something on the side that I'm looking at or, or reading through, or uh, you have one of those infernal devices that keeps beeping and, and lighting up, and, and, and you feel like that time at the table is wasted unless you can multitask. You remember there, there were rhythms? You, you worked, and, and then you rested, and you worked, and then you rested some more, and, and we worked in the day, and we rested at night, and we didn't think about the work of the day. And we worked during the week and we rested on the weekends. And it feels like that's gone. That, that rhythm is gone. There's something going on. The rhythms are gone. It, it feels, to me at least, like, like a lot of what used to constitute the feel of a neighborhood is gone. Nobody sees anybody anymore. We know there's something going on with families. There's just there's something going on. And so I want to go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. Work and rest. They come up there at the very beginning of things. They're at the very heart of things. They're at the essence of, of what it means to live a human life. Understanding work and rest, these are life and death issues. Not just life and death are shook because the ship may get swamped by the ocean or one of those massive containers might fall on one of the workers. But they're just life and death in the way that they can grip us and hold us and master us. So what do we learn about work and work? I'm going to lay it out, or work and rest. Let's lay it out. The text that we're looking at this morning is going to teach us these three things. And you can follow along in your notes there. It talks about what it is that we're called to do. What is the work? It talks about how we're called to do it. And then it gives us this tantalizing clue about what we need in order to do it and do it well and survive. So here's the first thing. We see that in the very beginning, we are actually, we're, we're called to work. Now, that doesn't sound very exciting at all. Uh, but there's something very stunning in that declaration in Genesis. There's something exciting and positive about what it says when it addresses the subject of work. Genesis 2.2 says, By the seventh day, God had finished all the work that he'd been doing. Stop and think about that for a second. God had finished all the what? All the work. He had been doing. One of the commentaries I read said, Do you realize what an intellectually radical statement this must have been when it was written? When you look to other accounts of creation, you would never see this. That this much was abundantly clear in every mythology and every creation account that gods don't do work. 
The gods don't do work. The Enuma Elish is a famous ancient Babylonian account of creation. In that account, there's a, there's a battle of the gods. And, and Marduk, the king of the gods, and those who are his allies, they, they vanquish their foes. And, and Marduk says to them, after he slits open the body of one of the defeated gods, and opens it up and says, this is where we're going to live. This is the universe. Move in. Interesting creation account, isn't it? Living inside a emaciated corpse. This is where we're going to live. We can come and go in and out of this new world that, that I'm creating. And they respond, hey, but if we move in, who's going to keep it up? It looks like a lot of work, and we don't want to do it. <laughs> and so Marduk says, I know it. And this is what he says. This is the translation of the Enuma Elish. I'm going to bring into being a lowly, primitive creature called man. doesn't say woman, just man, lowly and primitive. <laughs> man shall be his name, and to him shall be charged the labor of the world so that the gods may rest. In all Eastern accounts of creation, the gods don't do work. Humans do the work so they can rest. Let's go to the other side. Let's, let's look now at the Western accounts, the, the Greek accounts, the Roman accounts. The Greeks have lots of myths about origin. Probably the most famous is the myth of Pandora's box. You remember that one? In, in Pandora's box, Zeus gives this, actually it's a jar. He gives this jar. I don't know how it became a box, but he gives this jar and he says, don't open it. And of course, the first thing that they do is they open it. And out of this jar comes all the bad things that plague the world. Death, disease, decay, and work. You see, in, in that view, work is there in Pandora's jar. Work comes out with death and disease and every other vilified thing in the world. What's going on here in Genesis 1? It, it, it's, it's almost like it's, it's right in the teeth of both Eastern and Western worldviews. Everybody's saying that, that work is awful, work is a plague, it's a curse, it's a punishment. And Genesis is saying, no, work is God's design. Work is good, work is sacred. Here's what's really astounding. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 7, if you've still got Genesis open. The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, from the dirt. We've said this before, but the word, the word dirt in Hebrew is... Adama, Adama, uh, out of the Adama, the dirt, God creates Adam, the, the dirt man. Doesn't say anything about woman again, just dirt man. Okay. Out of the dust of the ground, he breathed into its nostrils the breath of life, and the dirt became a living being. Let me remind you of what some of you, probably many of you learned in school. Uh, for ancients in the Western world, Greeks or, or Romans, the dirt, the, the earth, the world, everything physical was considered bad. It was bad. It was, it, it, was, it was profane. The soul was good. The body and the world were bad. That's, that's the, core, the core proclamation of Greek philosophy. The body is a prison of the soul. Xenophon and Cicero and Socrates, everybody thought that the physical world is demeaning and corrupt. All of it, it was a curse that came flowing out of Pandora's jar. 
not something good. It's a punishment. And if you had to do work, stay out of the dirt. That's the most demeaning of all work. You don't do manual work. By the way, Socrates even said that retail work was demeaning. He said, whatever you do, even if you have to work, uh, avoid the work of the earth and, and the work of the market. Be a teacher or be a philosopher, which coincidentally is what he was. So. Get into the information industry, basically, is what Socrates was saying. And now we have the book of Genesis, almost deliberately, I think, giving us this picture of God who's got dirt under his fingernails. Because he's been working there. And out of the dirt, he creates dirt man. (laughs) And then, of course, in Genesis 2, in verse 15, the tail end of that account, God plants a garden. Again, dirt under his fingernails. He's getting busy there. He plants a garden and he, he takes human beings and he puts them there and says, now you be the gardeners. This is, a, this is just so countercultural. I, I hope it feels that to you. It's, it's so unexpected. It's so radical. Genesis is going out of its way to say, look how good work is. Work was happening there in paradise. Work is not a curse of the fall. Work is not a plague because of the sinfulness of human beings. Work is God's vision for what Eden looked like in paradise. And what's there? We have a brief description. Great food. (laughs) I love that that's there in paradise. (laughs) Great food. Beautiful things to look at. So you have food and, and beauty and you have and and we'd see if we read on, you have spirituality. You see God walking there in the cool of the day with the gardeners. You had sexuality, you had friendship, and you had work. And it was all there in paradise. Not only is it put there in paradise, not only is it not a punishment, but the kind of work that's being held up is, is manual work. It's simple work. No matter how high and lofty your profession may be, or your position in society, remember this, your ancestor was a groundskeeper. When God took on flesh and stepped into the world, Jesus here, isn't it remarkable? He doesn't come as a philosopher. That's what the Greeks would have expected. He doesn't come as a noble statesman. That's what the Romans would expect. He, he didn't come as a great military general. That's what the Jewish people were certainly hoping for. He came as a carpenter, a union guy. I mean, just working with his hands. In the Bible, all work has dignity because God does it. I know Sheldon's going to talk a lot more about that theme of dignity next week, but there's, there's nothing more socially healing than to believe what the Bible tells us, and that's that we're called to good work, and that in society, that, that there's no work that's better than other work. That there's, there's no labor that's considered subordinate or superficial or less important, whether you're a crew or officer, that those distinctions you're working so hard to take down, they don't exist in Scripture. 
So that's the first thing. We're called to work. We're called to all kinds of work. Very, very radical idea. Secondly, I want to give you a practical idea for how we're called to work. In fact, we're going to tease out three of them, but we're going to move through them pretty quickly. How are we called to do it? Here's three guidelines. Let me say them quickly and then we'll work through. First, you look in. What is it that you're gifted to do? And then you look out. What is it that people need? And then you look up. You look up and say, who's the one who's called me? And what will be the mission of my life when I hear and understand the call? You look in, you look out, and, and you look up. You need all three. So let's, let's unpack those very quickly. Look at chapter 1, verse 26. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule. Boy, that word is just filled and filled with, with meaning and often the wrong meaning. But let's make them in our image and make them rulers. What does that mean? Well, if you are made in the image of the king, then a small part of that would be to have dominion. Some of you have the old King James translation. You have dominion over the world. But what does the rule of God look like? It's it's a loving, compassionate, justice-oriented, fiery, holy rule. That's the kind of rule that's given to us. God is a creator. What does it mean to be made in the image of a creator? We need to create. Now, listen, that doesn't mean we all have to be artists. As a matter of fact, and listen carefully here, the word create, the word that's used there, the Hebrew word, means literally to Fabric or to fashion something, to fabricate it out of nothing. To create ex nihilo, to create out of nothing. The word only appears three times. It only ever appears in Genesis 1 and 2, and it only ever appears when describing the work of God. That is the unique providence of God. You could say that's what it means to be God. That God creates out of nothing. Every time you see the word create used outside of that, or maybe it's translated as, as form or shape or, or make, the meaning is to take what exists, existing elements, and fabricate them into something new. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, Tolkien, coined the word sub-creation. To make something relatively new out of existing material. Subcreation is the word that's used for the rest of Genesis. Even, even when the Spirit is hovering over the waters. And, and, and all that matter is there, but it's, it's chaotic. And, and out of that, the Spirit is, is subcreating, is, is fashioning something new out of all those undeveloped materials. Subcreation is bringing newness out of what already exists. And every human being, I think, has a desire to do that. Think about a bunch of examples. Uh, you create a business. In creating a business, aren't you taking all these disparate elements? You take humans, people with skills and abilities, you put them together, you make them a team. You take products and you offer them in a unique way, or you take raw materials and you create a product that wasn't there before. Uh, maybe you're an artist and you take raw materials and you fashion them into a sculpture or a painting or, or a song. Maybe you're good at taking dysfunctional organizations or teams that just their output is sinking, they're losing money, the whole division is unstable, 
And you work with what's there, the raw material, but you reshape it, you refashion it, and jobs are saved, and the department is rehabilitated, and something new goes forward. Maybe you're a teacher, and you want to bring out the potential in the raw material of your students. You're drawing out their abilities. You're showing them what they can do. A medical professional. You take a disordered body, and you make it orderly. A body that's in some ways sinking or falling apart, and you bring it together. A therapist or a counselor who takes a disorderly life and and gives a person the tools to bring order to it. Maybe you just love cleaning the yard. (laughs) Or, Or styling and cutting hair. Whatever it is, you realize when you do that, you're doing exactly what the Spirit of God did when when it was hovering over the waters. You're bringing order out of chaos, and you need to do that. I mean, isn't that why it's so satisfying to, to see a job well done? Whether business or teaching or counseling or medicine or, or management, it just doesn't matter. Uh, groundskeeping or domestic engineering. Don't you love that word? <laughs> or, or just running a comb through somebody's hair, right? You're doing what the Spirit of God did. You're bringing order out of chaos. You're bringing something new. And you need that. You absolutely need that. The New York Times ran an article just a couple of years ago, coined a new word. It was new to me. The word was affluenza. You hear that before? Affluenza? Yeah, it's new to me anyway. Affluenza. They looked at people whose parents worked hard to accumulate a fortune but then that fortune is inherited by a new generation. Or they looked at people whose sole goal in life was to retire early, to stop working. And what the, what the article was saying is, was basically, if you have this Pandora's box view of work, that it's a curse, and, and you say uh, either implicitly through early retirement or explicitly through an inherited fortune, I never have to work, or I never have to work again it won't be long until you feel this deep disorientation to your very humanity. Affluenza. Your own uselessness is choking you. You have gifts. You're made in the image of a creator. You have to create. You you have to make. So you look inside and and you find a job that fits your gifts, your talents, your unique mixture of of personality and experience in history, the, the way that God has fashioned you in the image of the Spirit and, and the image of the Creator. So you look in. Secondly, you look out. Have a look at verse 15 of chapter 2. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. Why? To work it and take care of it. Not just to work it, not just to use it, to take care of it. This is the issue of stewardship, isn't it? I know lots of you, because we live in this modern or maybe postmodern, contemporary, largely individualistic society, we really get grooved on the first of the guidelines. Yeah, find what's inside of me and let it out. You know, work according to your passion, your design, your gift, ability. We, we love that. But here's the second part. Find work that not just fulfills you, but helps others. Find work that's for the common good. That's the stewardship part. Find work that the world needs. You are stewards 
of the people around you, not just stewards of the gifts that are within you. You've been given gifts for them. Here's where the average Canadian says, great, great, I believe that. I'm going to find a great job, fits my gifts, and I will make as much money as I possibly can. I'll sock it away, and then I'll give it away. Of course, that's one way. And if that's you, that's, that can be a great way, and it can be really important. And, and if you make a great deal of money at what you do, you're still a steward. You're still here to take care of the world God has given us and take care of the people around you. But I, I want you to recognize this, and this, this was new to me when I read it this week. You recognize, of course, that our society values some skills above others. If you're good at commerce or investing, or dribbling a basketball, the chances are you're going to earn a lot more money than someone who is good with a carpenter's square or a bedpan. But if you'd lived 100, 200 years ago, if you've been born into that word, you realize that your abilities with, you know, with mathematics or, or with an inflatable rubber ball, they would have been worth very little. Your ability to to increase capital in the world, to make money, really is just a bizarre byproduct of the time that you were born. Make sure you're generous with what you have, because it was given to you. Here's the other thought. Why wait? I mean, why wait until you've achieved position and status and wealth why wait until then to begin to wrestle with the question of stewardship? Why not take a job now that doesn't earn as much money? But you take it because it's good for people. That feels like really bad career management in our world. Don't just use the garden. You care for it. The second thing you need to do is look out. What do people need? Am I producing something that's good for the world, that helps people? And here's the last thing. You don't just look in and look out. It's not just enough to find a job that fits me and helps others. There has to be some sense that God has a stake in the choices of your life. And so you look up and say, God, what's the mission? What's the purpose? Here's the best example I could think of it, and this is for you, Edmund. John Coltrane. John Coltrane. Great saxophonist, jazz musician of the 20th century. He was converted in 1957, transformed his view of work. He wrote some tremendous jazz, arguably the, the most important, certainly the most famous of his albums was called A Love Supreme. Just this ecstatic outpouring of praise to Jesus Christ. And one of the towering giants of modern jazz, I mean, he played with Dizzy Gillespie and Miles Davis. These are the liner notes that he wrote for that album, A Love Supreme. Listen, it says, In 1957, I experienced by the grace of God a spiritual awakening which was to lead me to a richer, fuller, more productive life. And at that time, in gratitude, I humbly asked to be given the means and privilege to make others happy through music. And I feel this has been granted through His grace. All praise to God. If 
Ephesians 2, 8-10, fascinating. It says, for we are remarkably God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. But not just that, good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. God has a design for your life. So first you look in, you realize God has given me the ability to do some things well. And then you look out and say, am I in the place where my days count for something? When I'm productive, does it make a difference in the lives of other people? And, and thirdly, you, you look up and you acknowledge that this is the work God prepared in advance for me to do. I'm on a mission. My work, my labor is consistent with God's leading in my life. As Martin Luther said, and we looked at it last week, you know, the humblest farm girl, the humblest farm girl, milking a cow in the fields is one of the means that God is using to feed the world. She becomes the fingers of God. If you have all three of these things, you, you're going to find that elusive sense of contentment in work that is so enviable in this generation. Listen, now is the place in the service where, where you're realizing, boy, it's late, turkey's in the oven, and maybe a little bit agitated too, because this, this sounds a little bit utopian, unrealistic. And by the way, I know you're right, and I'll tell you why. I have, I have a great job. I know I have a great job. I have a better job than I ever thought I would have. But you know what? Even the best jobs can be unbelievably frustrating. And there are weeks that are soul-crushing and filled with difficulty and anxiety. So maybe you're thinking, that's just, it's, Pastor, it's, it's not realistic. That's not what the world is like. That's not what work is like. Work has been for me nothing but frustrating and aggravating and it's destroying me. And I would do anything if I could get out of my job. Maybe that's you. Can I at least suggest this, that the Bible is very realistic when it says, yes, 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 yes. You're never going to be able to do the work you're called to do. You're never going to be able to do it this way unless you can find the one thing that you absolutely have to have in order to work well. What is that? Rest. Rest. Now listen, chapter 2, verse 2. God finished His work, then He rested. But then it goes on and says He created and He hallowed the seventh day. He hallowed it, which means He set it aside for us. And if we only had Genesis 1 and 2, it would be easy to conclude that, that all that this is really about is God saying, well listen, you work hard for six days and then you sit in a hammock or lie in a hammock on day 7. Rhythm of, of work and rest. And that makes sense. And physically, you know that you need that. Your body just needs to stop and recharge. But if you really want to be able to work the way that Scripture's talking about, you need a different level of rest. You need, well, the Scriptures call it Sabbath rest. There's a place in Psalm 3 where it says, even though there are 10,000 people on my left and my right, I lay myself down to sleep and I awake at peace for the Lord sustains me. That kind of rest that just knows how to leave work behind. Listen, scientists will tell you that it doesn't matter how many hours of, 
of sleep you get at night, unless you get a certain kind of sleep, a deep sleep, you're going to awaken the next day and you're going to be just as frazzled and just as scrambled as when you went to, to bed the night before. You, you know what it's called, that sleep? REM sleep. Yeah, rapid eye. I guess it looks crazy. Because if you could lift up the eyelids, people's eyes are going crazy, right? But rapid eye movement, REM sleep. Psalm 3 says, I have all these things, all these pressures on me, but when I lie down and then I awake again, the Lord sustains me. And what he's really talking about is the REM sleep of the soul. The REM sleep of the soul. I thought we'd have fun just for two, two, three minutes and end with a bunch of silly examples. Because it's good to laugh. Why did Rocky work? You remember? Yeah? The, yeah. Why did he work? You know, he, he said he could never sleep the night before the big fight. Why did he work? Well, he said, I just, I just have to go the distance. I don't have to win. I, I just have to survive. And then he turned to Adrian because she asked him why. And she said, I need to show them that I'm not a bum. It's his reason for work. I'm not a bum. Why does Madonna work? She told us famous interview in Vogue magazine. Listen to her. Every time I accomplish something, every time I feel like I'm a special human being, I feel it only for a while. And then I feel mediocre and uninteresting again. And I find I have to get past myself again and again. And my drive in life is from the horrible fear of being mediocre. I have to prove that I'm somebody. Madonna. Why did Harold Abrams work? Who? Harold Abrams. <laughs> Chariots of Fire. One of the main characters in that story about the, uh, the Olympics. He said when he's running the 100-yard dash in the Olympics, I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. What Rocky, Madonna, Abrams are, are showing us is that there is a work that is underneath our work. Why are they working? They're not just working to earn a living. They're not just working for money. What are they working for? Stephen Gould put it this way. He's a biologist, secular atheist. He said, we're here because one odd group of fishes had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs so that we became terrestrial creatures. We're here because comets struck the earth and wiped out dinosaurs, giving mammals a chance that would otherwise have been impossible. We may yearn for higher answers, but none exists. This explanation, though superficially troubling, if not terrifying, is ultimately liberating and exhilarating. I don't think so. But... We must construct these answers for ourselves. And he's right. If there is no God, if you don't have any relationship with God, how do you know that you mean anything? How do you know who you are? You have to construct it. And how are you going to do it? You do it with your work. That's the work under work. Rocky needs to fight to show that he's not a bum. Madonna needs to know that she's interesting, not mediocre. Harold Abrams is to justify his whole existence. That's what's making work a mess. You realize what a burden is there. If anything goes wrong in your career, you don't have a self anymore. And if anything goes wrong with the money you make, you don't have being, you don't have identity. Way back in Genesis 2, God cries out 
It's finished. It's complete. Centuries later, God again, in the person of Jesus, cries out, It's finished. First time He rests, it's because of creation. The second time He cries out, It's finished so that we could rest. You know what I'm talking about? That your identity doesn't rest in in your labor. All, All that's done. Hebrews 4 put it this way, Now we who have believed can enter that Sabbath rest. That Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their work just as God did from His. Until you believe that. Until you believe that Jesus died on a cross for you and did everything necessary. Until you believe, unlike Stephen Gould, that the significance you really need is significance in God's eyes. The security you really need is security in God's arms. That the approval you really need is approval in God's heart. And that when you're trying to work in order to get those things, that that's the work under work that's crushing you. And it's pulling you down until you understand that, until you see Him not only saying it's finished on the day of creation, but on the day of redemption, until you know you're not a bum already before before the fight begins, until you know that your whole existence is justified already before you run the race, your work will drive you and rule you until you believe those things. And you'll never get relief. But when you understand then you're not driven anymore. You're not pushed to the ground and flattened anymore. And finally, you can just work. And wouldn't that be something? If work was just about work, and it wasn't about you and your existence, finally you just work for its own sake. And then you rest. There's this incredible contentment that comes in work. And it's born by Jesus. And he said, and I hope you'll receive this as kind of a closing invitation and and God's prayer and desire for you. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who work and you feel heavily burdened by it, and I will give you rest. You can choose jobs, not because they bring you status and give you a name, but because they help people. They fit your gifts. You can take time off and not feel guilty about it. You can enjoy real physical rest because your, your mind, your soul is secure in spiritual rest, in that REM sleep of the soul. Come unto me, all you who work. You're heavily laden. Gentle am I and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Give us, Father, this great Sabbath, this rest that has been promised. Help us to see it and to know it. Father, there's so much great work to do. We look forward to the day when we can do our part and we can do the teaching or the counseling or the business and we can work and let it just be about the work and not be about us. Let it be about You and not us. Let it be about the people around us, but not us. Lord, we look forward to a day in which work isn't crushing us to the ground. So we ask, Father, that You would help us today to 
to develop this deep, this deep internal rest so the frustrations and the work of the world won't just crush us anymore. We ask, Father, that You would help us to be like Your Son who worked and rested in You. We pray it in Jesus' name.